the Jadens. Luke 19. If you do not own a Bible, come talk to me afterwards. I'll give you a free one. All right, Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 45 through 48. Four verses today. Uh, it'll take us some time to get through because there's a lot happening. Um, but it is a good section of scripture. We are literally nearing the end of Jesus' life. We're about a week out from him, um, less than a week, about a week, where he is going to lay down his life. And if you guys remember, as we started chapter 19, we got uh, the key verse, the main verse of the entirety of the book, the whole reason for why Jesus has even come to earth as man, right? Because remember, Jesus is the Son of God, right? So he is literally God. So God comes in man's flesh in the form of Jesus, correct? We see this at the beginning of Luke, but then we get into Luke 19.10, where Luke gives us an idea or the picture of why Jesus came to earth. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, right? And as we read through Scripture, if, if we understand anything about Scripture and the Word, and it reveals to us that we as human beings, as people, ever since Adam and Eve had sinned, that it has caused us to be lost, okay? That's the description given to us. We are lost, we are dead, we are the ungodly. And so again, the whole purpose is for Jesus to come to redeem us and bring us back to the point where it was with Adam and Eve prior to sin, right? There was, there was a relationship, there was oneness, there was unity, there was, uh, they could abide together, right? Like when sin then entered, they had to be cast out of the Garden of Eden, out of the presence of God. And so God in his love for us wants to bring that back about. And so Jesus comes on the scene. If you guys have AirPods in, please take them out. Um, he comes back on the scene to save us and to, and to, to find those who are lost and bring them back into the fold of God. And so, again, as we're continuing this, this section, Jesus is nearing the end. Um, and one of the things I want to do is read the four verses really quick and then give you a little bit of insight as to how we got here. So, in verse 45, Luke chapter 19, it says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And so Jesus does this one thing that is, it's, it's absolutely amazing, to be honest. It's a really quick story. We get four verses out of it, but there's a lot that is happening. You actually see this in John chapter 2 as well, but I believe in John chapter 2, it is a different instance of what's happening here. In John chapter 2, Jesus does pretty much almost the same thing, but at the beginning of his ministry. Now we see it, him doing it at the end of his ministry. And there's a purpose behind this. Okay, There's a purpose, and I think it's deeper, and we'll talk about this. There's, there's multiple levels and layers to this. It's more than Jesus just being upset that people were being taken advantage of with, within the, the temple, within, as we can call it, the church. Right? It was more than that. It was deeper than that. There was something that Jesus wanted us to understand as Gentiles, right? As people who are, are foreigners, who aren't the children or aren't the, the chosen nation of God. Because what's happening here is that they are selling, they are uh, exchanging money, 
There's exchange rates happening. And what's happening is they're doing it in the midst of the courts of the Gentiles. And so what's happening is they're not, the Gentiles aren't able to come into the place that they can go into. The only place in the temple they're allowed to go into, they can't come in because all this is happening. There's no more room. And so the Gentiles are unable to come in. Jesus is upset by this. But actually in the Old Testament, we see that this is predicted. That it was important that Jesus would come and cleanse the temple and that the king would do it. In Malachi chapter 3, you guys can see this, Malachi chapter 3, I'll read it to you. In verse 1 it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And so in this current condition, the temple was completely useless, and it wasn't functioning in the way that God had intended it to function. So he comes and he cleans it out. He cleanses it. As Malachi says, it's like a refiner's fire. Again, there's multiple layers to this, because we understand as, as new, you know, born-again Christians, as New Testament Christians, that we are the temple of the living God, right? And what does he do for us? You know, if we're considered the temple, he does the same thing in, in cleaning it out right? He forgives us. He washes us as white as snow because of the sins that we have committed. And so we can have this new, we are this new creation in Christ Jesus. So like I said, there's multiple layers to this. I think the first one here is that God doesn't want corruption in the house of God. Simple as that, right? That's, that's the surface level. We see it. There should not be corruption in the house of God, whether it's in the temple in this time or whether it's in the church building here, right? Or any church you go to, there should not be corruption, and the corruption that happens, and it starts with those who are in leadership, right? Now, God intended for there to be animals that could be bought at the temple. That was his intention. The intention was not for them to take advantage of that, okay? And a lot of times when, there is, um, when there's something that's gone wrong within the church, it usually starts with good intention, but then it's, it's fed onto by greed and selfishness, and then it leads to something that is bad. It leads to corruption. So the, the beginning of this, the, the purpose of this was good. God ordained it. God said it. God commanded it. But here we see leaders who are taking advantage of this situation. I'll talk more about it in a minute. And so he wants to, to, to clean out the corruption that's happening within the house of God and that nobody should hinder anyone from coming to the house of God right? Nobody. And this could be for any of us. It doesn't just apply to somebody who's in a leadership type position within the church. We shouldn't hinder anyone from coming. And this, this means more than just standing at the door and telling them they can't come in, right? This, there's a whole plethora of things that can cause people to not come to the house of God because of us. And we need to be mindful of that. Because the church should be what? It should be a place where people can meet God, right? It's a place where people can meet God. Can we meet God outside of the church building? 100%, right? But we can't neglect the assembly of the saints, as the New Testament tells us, and we can't, we can't neglect what Psalm 84 tells us about coming to the house of God and being in the midst of God's presence with other believers. There's something to it. We can't go to the far extreme of thinking church is not, beneficial at all. It's, it's useless. I can, I can have Christ without the church. That is a true statement, but that's not the intention that Christ ever had for his church, 
right? Is Christ bigger than the church building that we have? Of course, yeah. But it just so happens that God has blessed us with, you know, four walls and a roof for days like this, right? So we don't have to be out there in the rain and it's cold and it's gross. It's a beautiful thing that we can do. We can come together in the house of God. So that's the first aspect of this, that there's a literal thing that is happening, a cleansing of the temple, literally. And then the second thing we see is that Jesus comes to give us a symbolic meaning of that how he cleanses us individually, right? How he prepares us for a new way of thinking before he goes to the cross. Because they're coming to the temple to do what? To offer sacrifices to the Lord, right? They're offering sacrifices to the Lord. And so that was ordained in the Old Testament that they had certain regulations, they had certain rules that you had to have these animals, this type of animal, this amount of animals to sacrifice in regards to different things, whether it was a peace offering or it was for sin or it was something else. There was regulations to it. And so this continued all the way up until Jesus was crucified. And thank God, right? Like now we don't have to do, we don't have to, we're not bound by the law, but we're, you know, we're bound by grace now. We're freed by grace. And so one of the things they had to do is, is bring these animals, but some people would be coming from far away, like really far away. And if you're traveling and, you know, like they don't have the ease of how we have it now where we have cars and trunks and yada, yada, yada. Right? They were walking, they were doing this, they were riding donkeys, and not everyone could bring their animals. And the key thing about these animals, there had to be one key thing. Does anybody know what it was? That, huh? Spotless. spotless. That's exactly it. Spotless. Had to be perfect, without blemish. Now, if you're traveling hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many miles you're traveling, it's going to be really hard to bring your animal and have it be without blemish. And here's the thing too. Let's say hypothetically you were capable of doing that. Do you know what the priest would do once you got there? Is they would tell you, they would inspect it, and they would tell you that there was a blemish on it. Why would they do that? So they can make money. So then you then would have to buy the animal that they were selling within the temple. And it, at a higher rate. You guys ever gone to a sporting event? You ever gone to the movie theaters? or, um, I mean, any amusement park, right? Like Disneyland, Disneyland's a joke. Oh my goodness, it's a, it's a huge scam, right? Movie theaters, you go and get popcorn for like 10 bucks. How much does it cost them to make it? Eight cents, maybe? I don't know, like a third of a penny for each popcorn? Like, it's ridiculous. You go to a baseball game, a football game, and you get a bottle of water for, you know, $8, right? So why do they do that? Exactly, because you have to, because you can't bring in your own water, right? You can't bring in your own drinks. You can't bring in your own food. They check you at the door, and if you want to eat, if you're thirsty, then you've got to fork over the money. Now, the good thing is, like, I don't have to buy water or whatever. I don't have to, but, again, if I'm there with my kids, and they're crying, and they're hungry, like, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to fork over the money. Now, with this, it's a little bit different, right? Like, we, we live in a, you know, a w anyways. It's, it's not a horrible thing, but it becomes horrible once it's done within the temple of God, right? It's, it's com two completely different things, two completely different things, and being taken advantage of as people are trying to come near to God. Like, for me, personally, I don't ever want to be a hindrance to anyone when it comes to them wanting to grow closer to the Lord. In any capacity, I don't want to become a hindrance. And so Jesus is 
again, I think symbolically and giving them a picture of, look, in about a week, I'm going to go lay down my life on the cross and none of this is going to be needed anymore. There aren't going to be no animal sacrifices because I will be the sacrifice, right? I will be the sacrificial lamb for all the sins of the world. And so you don't necessarily have to come to the temple anymore to find grace, to be close and united with God. All you have to do is trust and believe in him, put your faith in him, repent of your sins, and he says he will come and dine with us. It's a beautiful thing. It makes it so, so simple. And so again, the temple, the animal sacrifices, they're no longer going to be needed because Jesus himself is going to die in our place as an offering. And what happens too as he does this, as we put our faith in Christ, is he changes us from the inside out. He cleanses us, right? Because we don't come to, we don't come to Christ, we don't cleanse ourselves, we don't come clean, you know, we don't, we don't make things right before we come to Christ. Because if you try to do that, you realize that you're incapable of doing that, right? And we find out that any type of righteousness that is within ourselves, Christ sees it as what? Filthy, Filthy rags, right? It's gross. He's like, that's not good enough. And once we realize it's not good enough, we can just surrender to the Lord, and then he does the work of the cleansing, right? Just like he does here in the temple. He cleanses them out. And who does he cleanse out? Who does he kick out? Look at it. In verse uh, 45, he drove out those who bought and sold it. Isn't that interesting? Like even the ones who were buying it, he drove out. Not only the ones who were selling it. And so Christ is giving us an example here that we are going to be changed from the inside out as we put our faith in him. And that we, as he says, he says, my house is a house of prayer. And I think this is twofold as well, that the church of God should be a house of prayer, right? That we as a church should be people who pray. And that we as people, as individuals, as temples of the living God, that we should be people of prayer, right? Because what does prayer do? What's, it does. It does. And, it, and it's one of our ways of communication with God, right? We're going to see two major things that are happening here within the temple of God, within the house of God. One is prayer, that, that Christ says, my house is a house of prayer. And the second thing is teaching. Two main key things that should be found within the church, that should be found within us as individuals, is that there should be a love for the word of God and prayer. Two things. He says, my house is a house of prayer. And then in verse 47, it says he was teaching daily in the temple. And we see this as an example with the early church in Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 6, is that they, they, they devoted themselves to, to prayer and to teaching the word of God. Two things, prayer and teaching the word of God. The, the two main sources, like, our, our lifeline of how we communicate, how we know God, and how we can speak to him, and how he can speak to us, right? Isn't that what Christ wants? He wants that intimacy. He wants, he wants to bring those who are lost and make them found once again. And so again, verse 45, he went into the temple, began to drive out those who were bought, those who bought and sold in it, and saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The word for temple here. It's a, this word isn't exclusive of the temple building itself, but inside the whole grounds of the temple mount. And what we, what we understand as we look back 
is that the temple was more than just this one building. There were courts and there were outer courts and there was certain places that certain people could go. Okay, The temple grounds were made up of one courtyard within another with a building in the center. You could enter from the south, climbing the southern steps through tunnels that led you to the outermost court. And this court was called the court of the Gentiles. This is where everything is transpiring in this scenario, in this scene. As you get closer to the temple building, you would go through the court of women, the court of Israel, and then the court of priests. But as a Gentile, you couldn't go into any of those. As far as you could go was the outer courts, which was the court of the Gentiles. And so again, what's happening is that all this commotion, everything that's happening right here, is not allowing the Gentiles to even go in the one place that they're allowed to go in. And so it's keeping them out of the temple. Right? And Christ doesn't want that because what he came to seek and save that is, which is lost, but not just for the few, but for all. Right? He, it, God wishes that none should perish. And so he wants to give everyone an opportunity to come to him and to be able to find him. And so he cleanses out the temple here. It says he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. So two things happening that I kind of alluded to earlier is one, there was animal selling, okay? Because many people coming to the temple would be coming to present animal sacrifices to the Lord, whether that was a sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, whatever it may be, and they would travel long distances to get to the temple. And it would be much easier, again, just to buy the animal once you get there, knowing that it won't have a blemish, and two, if, you know, the priests have already said that this is okay, that it's, it's without blemish. So it's much, much easier to do that, although it's much more expensive. And God even suggested this. Like, he's the one that came up with this idea. It's not a bad idea, right? Like, I don't have to, you know, haul a bunch of animals and worry about them getting messed up or whatever's happening, that I can just go find it and buy it there. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we see God suggesting this idea to Moses that if a worshiper had to travel a great distance, he could just buy an animal in Jerusalem, okay? But again, the Jewish law had a requirement that the sacrifices be without blemish, right? Why is that? Why does God say that? Why, why not just any animal? Why not a three-legged lamb? Because it's not good enough, right? It had to be perfect in a sense. As, as perfect as perfect could be, where it can't be perfect, if that makes sense. Like an animal can't be perfect, but a, a, a without blemish animal, right? Like it's got at least two eyes, it doesn't have a cut, you know, it doesn't have a broken leg, doesn't have a missing tail, whatever it may be. Because this idea comes from God, the purpose behind it being that we don't give God our worst, that we don't give him trash, but we give him our best. We see this as an example with Cain and Abel, but ultimately, it points to something even more significant and more greater, which is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? That, that good theology allows us to understand that Christ had to be perfect. And if he was not perfect, it changes everything, right? So even something as simple as having an animal without blemish points to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 21 says, but if there is any defect in it, speaking of the animal, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So they're selling animals. But again, what are they doing? Well, 
they're making it more expensive than it needs to be to sell, to purchase these animals once they arrive to the temple. So that's the first thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening is that there's money exchange. There's money changing that is going on. So we've got the animal selling and now the money changing. Have you guys ever gone to another country? Yes. You guys ever had to exchange your American dollars for whatever the currency was in that country? No? Well, there's an exchange rate, right? There's the American dollar is different than, you know, the euro, or actually it's pretty close, but you get what I'm saying. So there's an exchange rate, and sometimes there's a cost to exchange that and to be able to get that currency in the country that you are in or going to. And so what's happening here is that a lot of people would be bringing money to the temple for different, different reasons, right? Sometimes it was just to tithe, to give money to the Lord. And so what they would be bringing is they would be bringing their Roman money, their Roman currency, and by Jewish law, you weren't allowed to bring or use Roman currency within the temple. You had to use the shekel. You had to use the Jewish currency. And so that exchange rate was, was high, and it was being taken advantage of. And so the people were being ripped off, and at the same time, the priests here were then becoming wealthy because they were ripping off the people, right? All things that we know just by being human is not right, correct? Yeah, that's not fair. It's not right. It's, it's taking advantage of people who are desperate, right? Here's people who are completely desperate to find the Lord. And this happens today. Like, you'd be very surprised. You may not think, like, you probably haven't experienced it. I hope not. But it happens today more than you think it does. Have you guys ever seen, um, what's that movie we watched a couple years ago here? American Gospel, thank you. I was going to say Jesus Revolution. American Gospel. Have you guys ever seen the American Gospel? Right? The Word of Faith movement? That if, if you, like, um, oh, Joyce Meyer. You ever heard of Joyce Meyer? Perfect example. And I don't care if you get mad if I use her name. She is actually interviewed one time. This is, I don't have this in my notes, so bear with me if I get this wrong. Um, she was interviewed one time by a reporter who was not a Christian, but just could just see things from the outside of how this is wrong. And she, the reporter asked her, like, you know, don't you, don't you feel bad for these people who are giving, you know, their last money, their last paycheck, you know, to, to get what they want? Because the idea that Joyce Meyer and many of these people put out there is that if you give this money to my ministry, God will bless you, right? You'll make back a hundredfold or you know, God will heal you of your disease or, you know, your curse or whatever wacky stuff they throw out there. And to you and I, maybe, maybe to you and I, at least to me, I'm thinking, who would do that? Like, who in their right mind would even think that they could just give their money and then God would just bless them? That doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I think I know that because I'm biblically literate, but what I fail to realize is that so many people are desperate. And the American gospel actually points that out really, really well. So many people are desperate. They're in need. They're hurting. They're in pain, right? Like people have cancer. People have ailments. People have, um, you know, they struggle financially, right? They've got to provide for their family, for their kids, for their spouse, even for themselves. And they're in horrible situations. And when you get to like rock bottom, you get to a position where it's out of your control, you look to something greater than you. And so people turn to God, right? They turn to God. The thing is that they get taken advantage of, right? And many of these people who are in this position, they take advantage of them and tell them, look, if you give this, if you give, if you sow a seed, <laughs> you ever heard that? Man, if you just sow a seed and that seed's money, 
right? Well, then that'll, you know, it'll, it'll blossom and it'll grow and you'll get it back. And, you know, God's going to give you giftings and he's going to anoint you and yada, yada, yada. And people fall for this. Again, because they're desperate. Because they need Christ. And Joyce Meyer, going back to that, she was asked, like, don't you feel bad about this? And I forget her exact response. I don't want to say the wrong thing. But basically along the lines of, like, like she didn't care. Like, it was between them and the Lord. And many, many people do this. Many televangelists and um, not everyone, but it's easy to point out. And so it is still something that's happening today within the church, within God's house, and it's a sad thing. And so, so God, Jesus here, he, you know, he, he re, you know, gives them this new foundation of this is not what should be happening. This is not how God had ordained what to happen within the temple. You know, he says the house, this house, this temple should be a house of prayer, right? Not being taken advantage of. Now, I ask you this question. Is it wrong to sell things in the church? Depending, depending on what it is. Is it wrong to sell things in the church? Because we could use this and go to the extreme and say, look, I think Jesus is kind of saying, like, don't sell things in the church, right? Like, then we would be guilty because what do we, we sell, you know, books and Bibles and other things within the church, right? Are, are we guilty of, of sin just like they're guilty of sin here? You know, and then people will criticize and they'll use this passage, you know, to, to make their point. But again, there's, there's a bigger picture here because the idea of selling animals for sacrifice was God's idea. So that's not the issue, right? It wasn't a matter of selling things. It was a matter of taking advantage of these money-hungry priests who were making money off of, you know, those who were desperate, those who were in need, right? And, and not allowing them to come to the house of God in a proper manner. And so I believe, you know, if you do it in the right way, it can be done well. It can be done good. But if you start to take advantage of people, well, then that's a whole different thing. Like for us, as an example, I can't use other churches because I don't know what other churches do. We sell things. When we sell things, we sell them at a tiny bit of profit, still as cheap as you can find it elsewhere. But do you know what we do with the profit? It goes back. It goes to missions, right? It goes to missions efforts, whether that's supporting a missionary, you know, uh, overseas, or, you know, if it's supporting first priority here, or if it's actual missions trips and then things that we do locally and throughout the nation. Um, so, it becomes bad when the focus of the church changes from prayer and teaching to other issues like making money. And again, that's where there's the problem. All right? And I'm, I know we're not a perfect church, but we are intentional when it comes to prayer and it comes to teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this. It says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits, a sex, who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not of your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so, here, Paul gives us the example that, like, our individual bodies, like, is the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? Very, very simple to understand. And he's saying that your temple, your body, is not designed for sin, for immorality, 
right? Just like the temple in Jerusalem. It was not designed for making money and taking advantage of people, right? It was designed to grow us closer to God. And so the Holy Spirit allows us to do that. Like, that's how we understand and know more of who God is because we have the Spirit of God in us, right? Our body was designed for God. So that's one aspect of the temple. The second aspect of the temple is that when we, so like, we can look around this room, we got like 60 people in here or something. There's, you know, 60 different temples, or is there like one temple? I think we can look at it kind of both ways. So when believers gather together, we also form a temple. We get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. It says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now you're thinking that sounds just like the other verse. The difference is in the Greek, the you is plural throughout this entire passage here. Speaking of that we, of the people, make up the temple of God. Right? We are the temple of God as a people, as a body of Christ. Right? And again, it, it's, not, it's not the four walls, but it just so happens that we gather in this place together within these four walls. Right? The four walls are not a bad thing. I think sometimes we, we go to the, to the extreme of thinking that it's a bad thing, but it's not. It's just we don't idolize the four walls as holy grounds, but it's a matter of that we are within the four walls, and he says our temple is holy, right? Our temple is holy. And why are we holy? Not because of anything we've done, right? Because of Jesus. Because of who's in us? The Holy Spirit, right? Kind of forget that, like, the first part of that is he's holy, the Spirit of God is holy. He's the Holy Spirit. And so we're holy because he is holy. In verse 46, Jesus says, as he's driving them out, those who bought and sold, he says this. Because he doesn't just do this without a reason. He doesn't just do it without teaching or exclaiming or giving a reason as to why he's doing this. He says, it is written. Right. So he quotes something from the Old Testament, something that they all knew. He says, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So what Jesus quotes is Isaiah chapter 56, specifically verse 7, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. It says, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and, and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than the, that of the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, that shall not be cut off. And I think I missed the last two verses. I'm going to try to find it really quick. Bear with me. I didn't, I, my copy and paste didn't work. Isaiah 56, uh, let's see. 
In verse 6, and also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So this is the quote that Jesus is bringing back in this time that Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah exclaimed that God's temple, God's house should be a house of prayer, a place where we connect with the Lord, where, where we come, listen, when we come, we should expect to meet God. We should expect to meet God. Like, and I want to encourage you with that, and I hope maybe you guys were here a couple weeks ago when I taught on Psalm 84 and how important it is to be in the house of the Lord. And that when we come, we should come with the expectation to meet God. That we don't just come on a Sunday or a Wednesday nonchalantly, that it's another day, it's another service, but that every time we come, we can expect the Lord to speak to us. That he can meet us where we're at. That he can give us what we need. Right? That's, that's the expectation that we should have. So he says, my house should be a house of prayer. And this wasn't happening in the temple. And he says, but you have made it a den of thieves. And this he's now quoting from Jeremiah 7. 11. He says in verse 1 of Jeremiah 7, he says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying this, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you Judah who enters in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, who do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I give you to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal? and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. There's a lot to that, but basically saying like, you constantly go, you know, steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods. Basically, are you living a life of immorality and then you come and you stand before my face? You can't do that. You cannot live your own life six days out of the week and then come to the house of God. He considers it a, a den of thieves. Does that mean like, dude, I mean, we, we sin and we fall short, of course, every single day. But there is a big difference between somebody who stumbles and somebody who blatantly sins. And somebody who, who knows deep down in their heart that they're just being hypocritical. There's a big difference between somebody trying and not trying. Big difference. And the Lord knows that. The Lord sees that. And he says, you come and you stand before me in my house. And you say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Jesus is calling out these false worshipers and, and these false priests. They're living wicked, sinful lives. And not only has it been happening six days throughout the week, but now it is even with, it's seeping within the church. It's seeping within the temple because they're taking advantage of people. They're, they're, being, they're doing sinful things. 
Like, you, we can only hide our sin so long and so much. Like, it eventually gets out. It eventually seeps into other areas of our life. But again, what does Christ want to do for those of us who are in sin? He wants to cleanse the temple. And you can clean yourself up, and you can try, but it won't do much. And you'll find out you'll go back to the very same sinful lifestyle. Or you can completely surrender to the Lord. And he can cleanse you, and he can change you, and he can transform you. Calls it a den of thieves, one who plunders, one who steals openly. And what were they doing? They were openly ripping off the people. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, instead of praying for the people, the priests were praying on the people. And Jesus was mad. He was angry. And his anger caused him, you know, in one of the, um, I think it's in John 2, where he flips the tables, right? And we love that. We're like, yeah, Jesus, like, flipping tables, that's awesome. And I want to encourage you with this, because this actually came up this week, because it was, I think for many of us, it may be hard to understand how Jesus is able to get angry and not sin, right? Like, how is he able to, like, flip a table and grab a, a whip and whip people out and, you know, like, that's Jesus? This is the same guy who's about to go and die for their sins? Like, what? Well, I don't, you tell me he's loving, you tell me he's, you know, perfect, and it just doesn't seem perfect because that seems like there's anger. In Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's chapter 4, turn there really quick, Ephesians chapter 4, we got a few minutes. Yes, in verse 26. I want to kind of explain to you how Jesus is capable of doing this without sin and how we too could be capable of doing this without sin as well. Ephesians 26, E4, 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the uh, sun go down on your wrath. So Paul tells us, he's writing to the Ephesians, that, that you can be angry and not sin. Okay? Paul actually is quoting Psalm 4.4 here at the same time. And I know it can sound strange that we can be angry and not sin. Um, but we see even all throughout Scripture that, that God has a wrath right? That oftentimes he does get angry. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. I think we, we somewhat see it here um, with Jesus here driving out those who are buying and selling, is that Jesus becomes angry. God becomes angry. But if God is perfect, then we find out that this anger is a good anger. It is a righteous anger, right? Sometimes we, we call it righteous indignation, righteous anger, um, Romans 2.5 says this, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath and revelation on the righteous judgment of God. And so God, God does show wrath, and it's a perfect wrath, right? It's one without sin. And I think the big difference between you and I when it comes to my anger and God's anger is that his anger is directed 
it comes from sin because of sin. It's always because of sin, right? Here's sin happening within the temple, and he's angry. In my anger, it comes because of sin, because I'm sinful, if this makes sense. So when I'm angry, usually my anger is sin because it started with sin, right? I'm angry because, you know, my wife's taking too long to get ready. You know, then I get angry. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. It's raining. I stub my toe. I don't know, whatever, right? Like, I get angry. And I know you guys probably struggle with anger as well. I'm sure everyone at one point or another. Again, the big difference is that our, our anger usually stems and it comes from sin to begin with. And then it leads to sin. It leads to more sin. And that's when our anger is sin. And so with God, with Jesus, and I want to clarify this too, is that even though Jesus does this, I want to say it's, it's more than just an example of how we can be righteously mad. Right? It's more than just an example. Because remember this, and I tell you this a lot. Everything that Jesus does is pretty much unique to him. He's the son of God, right? And so you're thinking, ah, man, I can do the same thing. I can be angry and not sin like Jesus did it. Well, hear me out. Jesus was perfect, and he's God, right? There's a big difference. Is this somewhat of an example? Yes. And so I want to look at this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, okay? This happens right before he says, be angry and do not sin. Well, how are we capable of doing that? Well, Paul says, one, you got to put on the new man. He says, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Then he goes on to say, you know, put away lying and speak truth. The point being that if we ever think that we can show righteous anger, it has to first start with us walking in righteousness. It has to first start with us walking in the spirit, being renewed, being, you know, having the new, putting on the new man, right, in true righteousness and holiness, because we can be angry and not sin. Again, if it starts with that, and if our anger is directed towards things that God is angry about as well, sin, right? Sin. And there's, there's plenty of things that are happening in the world where it causes us to be angry. But listen, this anger never leads to sin as well. Like, it can be sin, but it should also never lead to sin, right? Your anger should never cause you to, you know, um, you know punch someone, right? Or I don't know, whatever your anger can do. Seek vengeance. Revenge right? Somebody does something, you get angry, and you want to retaliate. That's not a righteous anger. That's not the anger that, that God has for us. The Lord tells us that righteous, or, um, vengeance is his, and it's not what we are to do. We feel justified in our sinning because we have felt the emotion of anger, but Paul tells us that we can control our actions from these feelings, that you have control over what you do with your emotions, right? And I think we all understand that we, we have somewhat of control, that we don't just get angry and lose all control. You have a choice to make. It's no different than, I'm sure some of you guys have experienced this, when you become angry and then, you know, the phone rings and then your voice changes when you answer the phone, right? Or somebody walks in the room and then you just, your countenance changes, 
he goes on to say at the end of verse 26, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, I think that I remember my youth pastor telling us, you know, him and his wife, they would never go to bed angry. Right. And I think that's, you know, a wonderful thing. But I don't think that's a literal statement that Paul is making here that like you've got to figure it out that day before the sun goes down. Because then what happens when the sun goes down? You're like, oh, well, we failed. Right. No, I think the idea is that you, you figure it out quickly, that you resolve it as quickly as possible. And maybe you need a day. Maybe you need a couple hours to cool off. Maybe you need a day or two days to talk it out, to figure it out. If, if there's some issue between two people, or maybe you yourself, you need that time. But the idea of not letting it linger, because what happens if we allow the sun to go down on our, on our wrath? What happens when we allow anger to linger and it's never, ever dealt with? What happens? Verse 27 don't give place to the devil. It allows the devil a foothold. It allows him a foothold. So yeah, it brings bitterness, it brings outbursts of wrath, slander, malice, whatever it is, anything that, that Satan can and will take advantage of. It has to be resolved. It has to be resolved. Because he's, he's the accuser, he's the father of lies, he brings division and discord within not only your own heart, but within your relationships, within your family, within your church, if you allow him to do that. And so many people are ignorant to that fact that they don't even know that's happening. They don't even know that Satan's taking advantage of them. But Paul warns us, look, if there's anger in your heart, man, you need, you need to bring it to the Lord and, and resolve it, and you can cleanse it. But the righteous anger that Christ has, it's perfect, it's holy, it's just. I think that's a perfect description, that it's just. That Christ's wrath is just. So here is sin that is being displayed in the, the temple of God. And he says, look, this is not what it's for. This was not its intention. He cleanses it. And he says, this is a house of prayer. And then he immediately, in verse 47, he says, he, was, he taught daily in the temple. He taught daily. So leading up to his, his final day, he was teaching daily within the temple. And the chief priests, you know, obviously they're going to be mad. The scribes, the leaders of the people... They sought to destroy him. Why? I mean, they had it good, right? The people respected them. The people saw them as, you know, holy and greater and, you know, that they had some, you know, they were esteemed. They made a lot of money. I mean, they had it really good. And then here comes Jesus and just completely wipes that out, right? And, and just reveals to all the people that, like, this is not right. This is not God's intention. And he exposes the darkness. And what happens when the darkness is exposed? People don't like it. Right? We don't like the darkness disposed or exposed. It's a good thing, but we don't like it in our, in our fleshly nature. We don't like it. So they become angry, and they try to destroy him. They want to kill him. But Jesus, it says in verse 48, they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So two main priorities that are happening within the temple of God is that it's a house of prayer, and there's teaching of the word of God. And this, we see this in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. It says, they gave themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The two most important things that you will find within the church. Prayer and ministry of the word. And it says at the end of verse 48 that they were very attentive to hear him. 
I love that. The word attentive, it, it literally means in the Greek to hang from. So it literally means that they were hanging on every word that Jesus said. Why? Because it was truth. And he taught with authority. It was completely different than any man that has ever taught before. But even today, through men, God can do that. God can use good men to speak the word of God and for people to grow by it. That, yeah, you start with a little bit of milk, but man, then you start eating meat. That's what you need. And people want it. People desire it. I think a great example, and he's not a perfect man by any means. Nobody is. But, but Chuck Smith. If you guys see the Re- Jesus Revolution movie? I don't know if he was in it. I assume he was in it. Um, yeah, so Chuck Smith. Have you guys ever heard uh, Pastor Chuck teach? Some of you have. Uh, and if you haven't, I'll explain it like this. I don't want to say he's boring because that sounds like rude, but he's just simple. That was his motto. Simply teach the word of God simply. And I love that. I love that because I am a simple man as well. And when you teach children, I think sometimes, or kids, teenagers, young adults, like you have to keep it simple. I want to understand it simply and teach it simply. It's a very good thing. It's not, you know, these guys who are super, you know, energetic and they've got props and you know, I'm not, I'm not saying those things are bad, but what we come to find out is that it doesn't matter the personality, it doesn't matter the type of teacher, it doesn't matter the sound of their voice. Like Pastor Kevin, like when he first started teaching, he would teach like eight chapters a day or a service, eight chapters and just read through it. And he had the most super smooth voice that you'd be like, man, I'm about to fall asleep. It was, it was like pleasing to the ear. But do you know what happens when, when men just simply teach the word of God simply? Is that people hang on it. Not because of their great personality, not because of their, you know, silver tongue, not because of how amazing they are, but because it's truth. And people are hungry for God's truth. People are desperate. Right? People are desperate enough to throw all their money to find God. But then when, when, when people, and I love when we meet new people at our church, and again, I'm not trying to hype our church up as if we're the perfect church or the best church out there. But we do things well, I believe. I can say that. When people come to our church who have never heard the word of God taught correctly, they are completely amazed. And they say they grow leaps and bounds within six months compared to the six years that they were out there at their other church. Why? Because we teach verse by verse, expository. We go through everything that the, that the word of God is. It's truth. It's an amazing thing. And I think you guys are, you guys are blessed by this, but you, you maybe not, you don't see that all the time because you're just so used to it. And it's not a bad thing. But I just want to remind you, we are blessed to be in a church where every man that comes up on this stage or that stage, they teach the word of God. They teach it in the way that it was meant to be. And so, so many people are growing and we grow as somebody's ta- teaching us, but we grow even more when we get into the word ourselves. And that's the key thing. That's the most important thing. So they're hanging on every word. Two main things that are happening now within the temple as Jesus cleanses it out is that it becomes a house of prayer and it becomes a house, the ministry of the word. Two vital, important things. 